0: Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd. And Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd has a book at the press coming soon. And I think it's something that would be interesting to most all of us. The topic is Southern Beauty, Race, Ritual, and Memory in the Modern South. Welcome, Elizabeth Boyd, to this conversation. Thank you, Teresa. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, and we just, full disclosure, we know each other. Uh, we do. I mean, I'm not just connected to all the wonderful authors in the world, but you had a stop in Emory along the way. Tell us about I that. I did. My family and I lived
1: in Emory from 2007 in the fall to the fall of 2009. So for two years, when my husband was teaching at Emory and Henry College, I worked a bit part-time uh, writing grants for the uh, college, but was also away part of that time teaching at the
0: University of Mississippi. Well, I didn't really remember that you had worked for the college, but the, what I did remember is that you had a radio show right here on WEHC. I had a short-lived radio show, which was called Earshot,
1: and was not unlike, I believe, the um, conversations that you have um, with people in arts and culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what a great name for a show, Earshot. If I hadn't already been calling this this conversation for all these years, I think I'd consider changing the name and steal it from you. (laughs) Um, So just a little bit about what you've been doing since you left Emory in 2009, and then we'll get to what motivated you to write this book and talk about the book.
1: Sure, well, so uh, we moved to the DC Metro area in the fall of 2009. My husband was teaching at American University in international development. And I uh, began working for a nonprofit that I work uh, continue to work for, Seabury Resources for Aging, and work uh, specifically with congregations in the Episcopal Diocese of Washington and the United Church of Christ Potomac Association, um, developing spirituality of aging
0: programming. Well, that sounds fascinating, but it really also sounds a far cry from studying Southern beauty and how it has perpetuated in the material I, I saw, has perpetuated racism, sexism, and classism. Wow, what a contrast there. Let's feel good and spiritual yeah. as we get older, and then look what happened in the South. Well, this
1: is a long-standing project, so the two are not terribly related, although my role at Seabury uh, is educational, actually, um, so I'm still an educator, but it's in a different uh, content area. This uh Book uh, began many years ago um, and was the subject of my dissertation in American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, it has changed and evolved over the years, as I think many um, book projects do, and of course, life got in the way a few times <laughs> with uh, completing the work. But um, I really uh, came back to complete it when so much was happening in, in the U.S. Um, with, with public mem- issues of public memory and commemoration uh, of, the, of our Southern past and of our American past. Because that's really the way that my book is framed is from a, a public memory lens and a lens of white nostalgia. The, the connection there is, is the Southern beauty as a symbol of, of white nostalgia. So it's very much part of this same uh, conversation that has been going on uh, the last few years, especially about how we commemorate the past and about figures on the landscape, if you will. So I argue that the Southern beauty in these rituals that I study, which I'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure, is both one of the most enduring symbols of uh, white southernness for people who wish to remember the Southern past in a sort of uh, benevolent and nostalgic way, and and perhaps more enduring than some of the symbols that are coming down, uh, such as Confederate monuments and Confederate flags and other uh, more masculine symbols, if you will, um, that uh, that also appear on our landscape of the built environment. I look at three rituals in particular. Beauty pageants, sorority rush at some of the large Southern schools and a tourist production in Natchez, Mississippi uh, that featured a Confederate pageant as a tourist production since 1932, continues to feature a,
0: a similar production to this day. Yeah. Very quickly, before we dive into these, which I'm really looking forward to doing, you said something about the more masculine uh, symbols, but in the white nostalgia, but you also mentioned Confederate statues. So what other masculine symbols and, are, and memories are you talking about?
1: Uh, well, the flag is associated largely with war. And so the, I guess that's uh, a masculine realm, if you will, as well as I think about nooses, uh, lynching, symbols of, you know, of, of racial terrorism. Of course, most of the Confederate uh, monuments feature men, not all of them, but most of them. I'm just seeing this feminine figure who is in motion in these rituals, um, they're, and they're coming of age rituals largely. So it's, it's having young women through their, uh, through their coming of age rituals that happen like clockwork on a cycle, typically annually, um, do a lot of the work of uh, racism and
0: segregation. You know what, uh, Elizabeth, before we start into this subject full yeah. blast, one of my recent interviews was with a man uh, who teaches or taught school in uh, Solomon County who got fired. For oh, I read basic, all about that. Oh, yeah. yeah. What basically said what you, what you just said is that this was racial terrorism, that these images are racist in overtones, that there's white privilege and that kind of thing. Oh, you interviewed him? How? Well, I'm.
1: Uh, honored to be in his company. <laughs> I, I thought that was, uh, I read the whole story
0: in the Washington Post about about his firing and was horrified because I'm sure he's one of many. He's teaching about white privilege and it looks like white privilege took him down, but isn't that ironic? But let's talk right. about the Confederate pageant in Natchez, Mississippi and what that symbolizes in your book called Southern Beauty.
1: Yeah, so, uh, and white privilege is, is, an, another outcome of these performances uh, that I look at for sh- for sure. Um, so in Natchez, uh, the the women of the garden clubs back in the early '30s during the Depression started a pilgrimage and garden tour of their you know the they have an incredible collection of antebellum homes that were not destroyed. They invited members of the National Federation I'm going to say the wrong name but of garden clubs to come and visit Natchez for a spring pilgrimage and really they didn't have much gardens their gardens were kind of kind of pathetic but what they had were these these homes and so they invited people to come and tour the homes and it was this huge success Uh, people were looking to re-experience again that sort of nostalgia for the the romantic uh, moonlight and magnolia south and at a time when people had just started doing a lot of automobile tourism in the 20s this was you know sort of a, a success story of the women of Natchez putting on this um, pilgrimage and they made a lot of money they had people come from it was just uh, beyond what their dreams of what it would be and so as it developed over the years and pretty early on in the first few years they they had a A confederate pageant which a pageant sort of grew out of what used to be called a tableau you know a silent tableau that many towns would put on to to uh, mark the anniversary of their founding or something like that and in this case uh, it was um, different scenes from Natchez history supposedly but also very um, sort of the upbeat south you know this was nothing about slavery Uh, and the interesting thing about the confederate pageant yeah, of, of the Natchez pilgrimage was that it became to serve as a debutante function for the young women of the town and serve and being in this pageant every year, it would go on for about two weeks, these performances each night. At the end of it was a crowning of the queen of the pilgrimage, all in Confederate dress. And but it, so it was a status vehicle for the young women in the town. I think it's a, what's fascinating to me about that instance is that it had one meaning for the tourist who knew nothing about you know, who was whom in the cast, but much richer and nuanced meanings of status for the participants. Uh, Because who got to be in the court and have the top spots and be the
0: queen was all related to how hard your mother had worked for the club. It's all about class. I wanted to jump in here because this is the counter argument. You know, when I mentioned Matthew Hahn, who got fired, and it's shocking, you were, you know, disappointed and how you feel about that. But put yourself in the place of the debutantes or the women in Natchez this is what the people on the other side of the issue are going to say those debutantes those women they had no intention at all of being exclusive and racist because that's just the way they were raised that's all they knew so what do you say about i mean what do we do now do we stop having these things well well what? two things i mean the women of natchez it's
1: fascinating because they were very good businesswomen, I mean, they saved that city with these pilgrimages. It became the major industry of tourism uh, that remains today. And yet they did so in such a way where their business acumen was sort of cloaked behind this feminine persona, (laughs) where they were supposed to be
0: subordinate to Men. So you're saying that that's what the Confederate dress for women symbolized is that I'm the bell, I'm playing this role of being the subjugated, or that's not the right word, but I answer to the men, I please the men. Privilege. But we're really...
1: Yeah, they would trade their uh, gender subordination for race and class pr- privilege. Um, but, but in answer to your question about intention, uh, that's the interesting thing about racism. Racism does not require people who, that that's their intention, that these structures, in this case, this vehicle, this annual production, um, has the same effect, whether you are, it's, it's not about an attitude, it's, it's about this display that reiterates this class structure over and over again. What you're saying is,
0: I may not do this with the intention of being racism, but the fact that the right. structure exists... Is it in, in itself racist it, because it no perpetuates uh, yep. race? Yes, racial
1: hierarchies. Exactly. So, and I met many, many in the course of my, uh, and this is true of all of these uh, rituals that I studied. Some of these were beautiful, smart, young women. Part of the reason I wanted to interview them was to find out their motivations and their hesitations and their, uh, you know, what did they get out of it? Why were they doing this? And there was, there is a lot, there continues to be a lot of familial pressure, I think, and peer pressure to, you know, you're only this age once, that this is an expectation. In many cases, not very thought about very much at all, that this was just something you were going to do. If you go to school, you're going to rush you know, you're going to be in this sorority because that's what our family has always done or whatever. But that doesn't mean that the overall effect can be something unintentional.
0: Did you present that idea to the people you were interviewing? And then what did, what would their response be? Well, I didn't, uh, you know, at
1: that point, I was uh, not trying to drive my interpretation. I, I was, you know, trying to find their stories. When you do oral history work or taped interviews, um, You're creating your own sources, so it's a lengthy process. (laughs) Um, But once I started um, transcribing and listening and looking for the patterns in these stories, certain ones emerge so that then I feel like
0: there's some credibility to my interpretation. My guest today is Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd. She is the author of a book that will be coming out soon. It's already been submitted to the presses. It's called Southern Beauty race, ritual, and memory in the modern South. And Elizabeth interviewed 60 some people from what I understand, and has just said that she saw patterns emerge. So let's jump into what those patterns are.
1: Well, uh, some of the patterns are that in terms of what the girls told me, um, the, the motivations, for instance, for beauty pageant contestants was often quite different from sorority rush participants or the debutantes in Natchez. The uh, beauty pageant contestants were very much seeking publicity. I had no problem getting interviews. <laughs> for one thing, I didn't have actually have problems getting interviews with any of the groups, but the uh, sorority members uh, were, uh, many of them wanted to be remain, remain anonymous, but they were eager to tell me their stories. So that was very interesting to navigate that on some of these campuses. So what were the patterns that emerged? Some of the patterns were that they were ambivalent about their participation, that they, and yet they were doing it anyway. That, you know, of course, these were the people who were participating. So they obviously, there were people who had self-selected out, and I did not talk with them. Although I talked with some people who had been, for instance, Confederate pageant participants 20 years previously so they had a longer perspective but that there were there were people often especially in the sororities who sort of lamented the exclusivity of their groups that that was the way the animal was constructed was through exclusion and yet they were reluctant to, you know, for whatever reason, they did not want to withdraw. So there was, but there was quite a bit of ambivalence. Wish it could be different. They wish it could be this way or that way,
0: but this is just the way it is. This is the way we've always done it. It's quote-unquote tradition. So it's, ambivalence, seeking attention, some people lamented their exclusivity and some of it was tradition. Anything else we should talk about in the list of patterns oh, that emerged? I think that's a pretty good start. Well, <laughs> let's talk more about the beauty pageants cuz sure. your your book is Southern Beauty, but of course there are beauty pageants everywhere. Did yes. you just focus on the South? Are you from the South? How did how did you find this focus? Oh, well, I am from the South. I grew up in
1: Jackson, Mississippi. Um, but, and, and yes, beauty pageants are held around the world, but uh, as, as others before me, other scholars before me have proven and documented, and this is probably the, the ritual that is the most written about of the three that I look at, the southern states have proven to be sort of the model for other state systems, we have more participation at more levels, at every level. So that it becomes the southern states are what they what they call in the Miss America system, which is the one that I look at the most, look at the preliminaries. They're called the strong states or the southern states so that that uh, the, the southern contestants are just they go through more difficult, more rigorous, with more competition and more support, more community support, more money, more budgets, more adulation at the local level. It really still means something for you to be Miss Hometown in a way that perhaps it does not in other states that have not as uh, robust of state programs. So it's a phenomenon that, Don, that has put time and again, Southern contestants, if not the, if they're not the winner, usually dominate the top 10. And this has been true, especially during the late 20th century, during the civil rights movement, this was sort of uh, an arena in which whiteness was again
0: reiterated and celebrated on the bodies of young women. So one of the comments in the press about your book is that these pageants, these traditions have affected the feminine ideal that we actually have today. How so?
1: By influencing what the ideal American woman is supposed to look like and be like. Which is? And the the Miss America pageant especially has had a huge role in that, even though their influence is waning. In the period that I look at the most, which is the late 20th century and the early 2000s, so my information from these interviews comes from that period, and then I'm Uh, drop back and of course talk about the history of each of these rituals but it's the the this image of the southern beauty as the american beauty has really had a lot of has predominated and had high visibility in a way that is sort of outside
0: of it's what it should be (laughs) so what does she look like the ideal woman as perpetuated by this southern beauty tradition
1: Well, she's
0: uh, obviously she's quite, she's deferential to men.
1: She's smart and bright and uh, a a great conversationalist, but not terribly challenging. So she has a lot of skills of etiquette and manners, but she's doesn't really challenge people
0: politically uh, in a strong way, I would say. Well, now there's quite the picture. That's very clear. (laughs) I guess, nationwide, I don't know about the South. Well, this is a question. Uh, In the Miss America pageant, it's, well, the Miss America pageant comes from everywhere, but it seems like there's more of an effort to be more inclusive now, even though the pageants are still underway, right? They still happen? They do, and there is more effort, and of course, there's been a sort of a sea change
1: with, what what do they call it, putting Gretchen Carlson in charge of uh, Miss America organization, and I think she was calling it Miss America 2.0. It's always
0: evolving. You're suggesting that it's changing somewhat, but maybe not systemically deeply in terms of including people of different color, ethnicities. Oh, well, sir,
1: oh that's that's the question. That's, there are certainly people of different colors uh, and and different platforms now than there used to be. But has the sort of cultural logic of the pageant changed that much? Uh, what is it really, who wins and why? And do these people who who win, do they look
0: like anybody that, you know, in real life? <laughs> it's sort of a, an aesthetic that's within its own bubble. <laughs> yeah, ideal and unattainable. This is a question I'm dying to ask you. It may be a tangential and silly, but when you interviewed people from the past, not too distant past, but they were in their high heels and turning their backsides to the judges and saying that it was in their bathing suits, saying that it was about competing for scholarships. Do do people still defend that? Because they did stop doing the bathing suit competition, right? Um, They changed it. I haven't,
1: I don't know exactly what they're doing this year. So the whole scholarship argument, I just sort of point out is a ruse. And John Oliver actually is the one who sort of burst it wide open. I talk about this in my book. When he did some, he had, he did some research into their tax returns. (laughs) I discovered that, I don't have the figures in front of me, but discovered that the way they talked about the amount of money that they gave out for scholarship was actually not in line with what was actually awarded. It was sort of this much is possible to be awarded, but was not actually what was awarded. And it didn't surprise me at all, because the money is not really what the contestants are there for. They spend far more competing than they would ever, you know, besides maybe the final winner. And then that's questionable because you have to spend the entire year traveling around the U.S., you know, (laughs) doing all these uh, ceremonial jobs. So, I mean, I don't think it's ever been about the money. That's that's a a sort of a smokescreen because what it's about is seeing if you can perform this highly specific rendition of femininity and hit all the points, the demeanor, which I call that chapter misdemeanor, because uh, that's the most important thing uh, besides, you know, your looks and your bikini and all of that stuff is your demeanor. Are you uh, feminine and pleasing enough is is what
0: it's about. For I think we should maybe mention that John Oliver, everybody might not know who he is, but he's a comedian who has a show on HBO and he approaches very serious topics and does extended research into these topics, but presents it in kind of a funny and, and way.
1: He, he was not as a as a British uh, subject. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think he was uh, considered this uh, off limits in a way that many people sort of consider Miss America. Uh, untouchable royalty, if you will, <laughs> but it didn't stop him, and it didn't take him long either to to sort of blow the cover off of that argument, so I, th- I think that's an interesting thing, because certainly um, the pageant itself sort of revamped itself back in the, I want to say in the late 30s, 40s, after the Depression, uh, by calling it itself a scholarship pageant. That was part of what Lenora Slaughter did to make Miss America respectable again, because it was considered kind of sleazy, and not everybody was on board with with women competing in skimpy outfits, and uh, Lenora Slaughter, who worked for the organization for a long time, enlisted the the, uh, JCs around the country to sponsor many of the pageants, and so it became known as this sort of civic thing,
0: And it became respectable again. Elizabeth Boyd, if I were in an elevator with you somewhere and we talked and you said, I said, hey, how are you? And you said, I'm excited. My book has just come out. And I would say, what is your book about? Sum that up for us.
1: My book is about how young white Southern women have been used to perpetuate white supremacy and white privilege and class privilege in the American
0: South without anybody paying much attention. And because that they didn't intend to perpetuate racism, what does that matter?
1: Uh, No, I think because nobody paid attention because, because it was women, because it seemed just to be part of leisure culture, popular culture nothing serious these were not people out marching in the streets these were these were young women doing these traditional rituals
0: that we do every year and it's how serious could that be and most importantly what do you want to happen from people reading your book well
1: i have been very excited to see that some things are already happening, not a result of my book, but of some of the some people coming to the same conclusions that I have, such as uh, the young women on moveon.org who started the No More Bells petition, some of the young women who've complained and shut had shut down or been instrumental in shutting down some of the Bells organizations, like I believe the Birmingham Bells have shut down. And... There's a couple of others, I'm getting them confused, but there's several that are organized that do spring um, spring events uh, in southern cities where they dress up in antebellum, but faux antebellum costume as part of ostensibly tourist productions have said, are starting to question that, the young women themselves. And I think that that's, and also I think there's, uh, there's some, there's students at some colleges who are calling for the abolition of Greek life. Because they're realizing that
0: those sort of productions are offensive and racist. Southern Beauty by Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd. When will the book be out, and how do we get it? Well, you can pre-order it now, Teresa, on Amazon, on <laughs> <All laughs> right. Amazon
1: or on uh, on the University of Georgia Press website, also Barnes and Noble. It will be out August fifteenth, and I would assume that if you pre-order,
0: you will have it in your hands shortly after then. Well, beautiful. Well, congratulations. I know you've worked very hard on this and uh, I can't wait to read it. And once again, the title of the book is Southern Beauty. The author is Elizabeth Boyd and she has been my guest today on this conversation. Thank you one more time, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you for having me, Teresa. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yes, my pleasure. And thanks above all to our listeners. We wouldn't be here without them. So this is this conversation Wednesdays at six, Sundays at two, right here on WEHC.